Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagonia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, May 7th, 2016. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Out of all of the literature of the ancients, only one book instructs man as to the treachery of the people now known as Jews, and that book is the Bible of which both Old and New Testaments are equally relevant parts. To realize this truth, the Bible must be treated as the history book which it is, and studied forwards and backwards and forwards again, in conjunction with all of the other ancient documents which we have available. These people, now known as the Jews, can be traced from Genesis chapter 4, and through the early periods of Joshua and the Judges period, and into the kingdom of David and Solomon. And the prophets describe how they infiltrated, eventually subverted, and caused the downfall of that kingdom. The first humanist revolt was in the days of Jeroboam I. And by the time of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Jerusalem was nearly completely subverted much like all of the Western nations of today. But at that time, the progenitors of the modern Jews were known as Canaanites, Shelahites, and Hittites, among other things. Rebuilding the kingdom during the rather egalitarian Hellenistic period, Judea was infiltrated and subverted once again. Then, by the time of the birth of Christ, the Edomites, who were also Canaanites, took over the nation in a Bolshevik revolution of their own, which culminated in the reign of Herod the Edomite, about 36 B.C. Christianity was born in the face of that revolution. And it is the only world religion which explicitly and specifically identifies its agitators as the devils which they are. Later in the first century, the Edomites attempted to carry their revolution throughout the entire empire, and it continued for over 60 years. It did not end in 70 AD, but rather in 136 AD, after the Kedos War and the Bar Kokhba rebellion had also failed. In this respect, Flavius Josephus, with all of his otherwise honorable intentions, was one of their shiksas. He wrote his work, Wars of the Judeans, in Aramaic, at the start of the First Judean Revolt, addressing it to some of the so-called lost tribes, which he could still identify the northern barbarians, such as the Alans and Parthians, hoping that he could encourage them to join the cause against Rome. But the Jews failed, and when Christianity prevailed in Europe, in spite of three centuries of Jewish and Roman persecution, the Jews were crushed. By the sixth century, they were ostracized from all of European society for the first and only time in history in the name of Christianity.
So the Jews made war on Europe, enlisting the Arabs, Turks, and Mongols, until working from within, they could finally subvert it once again. However, the Jews, being the post-Christian leftover infiltrators of ancient Judea, thereby maintained the identity as the people of the Bible, which they had pilfered back in the 2nd and 1st centuries B.C. In truth, they are for the most part Edomites and not Judeans at all, as the New Testament attests again and again. Much later, when the printing press was developed, the Roman Catholic Church actively suppressed the printing of Bibles. By the 15th century, it had enough of its own errors to conceal. Men that did manage to study the Bible for themselves frequently understood the hypocrisy, revolted from the church, and the Jews took full advantage of that situation as well because they had long sought to undermine the church. But in this new humanist revolution, men rejected the Bible as well as the church, Turning to the pagan literature, which had never protected Europe from the Jews, they fell victim to the lies of the Jews. Johann Reuschlin and all of the humanist pagans who supported him are primary examples. All of the pagan ideals of the Old Testament Canaanites, think Sodom and Gomorrah, which were reflected in early European paganism as well as in the Talmud and Kabbalah, became the same ideals of the humanist aspect of the Reformation, which culminated in the so-called Enlightenment. The anti-Christian concepts of liberty, fraternity, equality, lasciviousness, licentiousness, and mysticism were promoted to men by the Jews straight from the pages of the Kabbalah and other Jewish literature. And Freemasonry became the primary vehicle for that promotion. Of course, history is much more complex than this meager assessment of the events enveloping the Reformation and the subsequent revolutions in Europe. However, sooner or later, men must learn that the only, only the gospel of Christ can serve as an adequate defense against the wiles of Satan. There is no other way. Here we shall commence with our presentation of part two of the book, The Plot Against the Church, which is attributed to Maurice Pinier, but really written by a group of higher-up Roman Catholic clerics. Where we had left off with chapter four, which is entitled The Crimes of Freemasonry. Concerning the monstrous crimes of this masterwork of modern Jewry, which Freemasonry represents, the most dignified Cardinal Caro says, the reading of the Freemasonic ritual allows it to be discerned, at least in the highest degree that it prepares its disciples for revenge, revolution, and hence for crime. In all these rites, says Benoit, the Freemasons are subjected to an education which teaches them cruelty in theory and practice.
They are told that the Freemasonic order follows the aim of avenging the death of Hiram Abeth, or his three faithless companions, or the death of Desmolay, or his murderers on his murderers, the Pope, the King, and Nogaret. And of course, Desmolay, Jacques Desmolay, is the famous leader of the Knights Templar. William of Nagare was a counselor to King Philip IV of France and was instrumental in getting some of the Knights Templar to inform on the others and was also instrumental in the proceedings against them when the order was dissolved, when they were arrested and their property confiscated in 1307. Here we are going to read a paragraph from page 333 of the Freemason's Manual, written by one Jeremiah Howe and published in 1881. I will um, post a PDF copy of this when I post this presentation at Christogenia this evening. And in chapter 22, Howe says... There is much difference of opinion as to the origin of this degree of the Masonic institution. And without attempting to show that the form of conferring the degree is identical with that of the gallant and devoted soldier monks of the Crusades, it cannot be controverted that their institution possessed some features of similarity to Freemasonry. The connection between the Knights Templar and the Masonic Institution has been repeatedly asserted by the friends and enemies of both. Brother Lowry says, we know the Knights Templar not only possessed the mysteries, which they really don't know, but performed the ceremonies and inculcated the duties of Freemasons and he attributed the dissolution of the order to the discovery of their being Freemasons and assembling in secret to practice the rites of the order, which is just a smokescreen. He endeavors to show that they were initiated into the order by the Druses, the Druze, a Syrian fraternity which existed at that date and indeed now continues. In a French manuscript ritual of about 1780, in the degree of black and white eagle, the transmission of the Freemasonry by the Templars is most positively asserted. In other words, the Freemasons are, are asserting this in their rituals. The history of the Templars and their persecution is minutely described in the closing address of the Freemasons. And the Grand Commander adds, This is, my illustrious brother, how and by whom Freemasonry is derived and has been transmitted to us. You are now a Knights Templar and on a level with them. And of course, I believe that Freemasonry is about as connected to the Knights Templar as Jesus is to Jews. It is our opinion that the whole story about Freemasonry getting into Europe through the Knights Templar is an absolute 
fabrication. No matter how early it appears in Freemasonry, there's no historic basis for it that I've ever seen. Historic basis for it that I've ever seen, which predates the relatively recent literature produced by Freemasons themselves. It is a cover story shielding the Jews from exposure as the real force behind Freemasonry. But even the sect of the Druze is founded upon Judaism, and modern Druze today can even sit and do sit in the Israeli parliament in Palestine, the Knesset. I cannot imagine that a Christian could ever do that. Furthermore, the Kabbalah is not a part of any ancient Druze literature, but a product of Jewish literature created in medieval Europe, and it is the basis for Freemasonry as well. Continuing with our source. In the first degree, the beginner tests his courage on neck and head, which are dressed about with blood-filled entrails. I do not know that Masons do these things in their little suburban lodges today. In another degree, he who is accepted must throw about heads which are placed upon a snake, or also kill a lamb, with which action he believes he kills a man. Here he must carry on bloody fights with foes who dispute his return to the fatherland. There are heads on a pole, or a corpse in a coffin, and the brothers in mourning vow revenge. The murder, the murdering of Rossi, the minister of Pius Nine through his former conspiratorial brothers, is well known. In the year 1883, four Italians, Emiliani, Scuriati, Lazaneschi, and Adriani, members of Young Italy, who fled to France, were betrayed to Mazzini and his helpers as traitors. And there's a slight, there's a slight historical error here. The reference is obscure. In a Google translation of the Italian version of this book, we read, in 1883, four Italians, and the same four names are given, all members of the Young Italy, refugees in France, were given to Giuseppe Mazzini, who only lived until 1872. He wasn't alive in 1883. And his followers, as the culprits, now, Mazzini was the founder of Young Italy, an early movement to reunite the Italian provinces, and he died in 1872. But this nevertheless refers to the murder of Pellegrino Rossi, who was appointed Papal Minister of the Interior for the Papal States in Italy, and who was also a former member, a member of the French Chamber of Peers. And our source says... On October 22, 1916, Count Sturck, the Chancellor of Austria, was murdered. The murderer, Fritz Adler, was a Freemason and son of a Freemason, as well as a member of a lodge with high Freemasonic dignitaries in Switzerland. In his declaration, he defended the right to exercise justice with his own hand. In France, Occasioned by the Dreyfus Affair, which was the trial of a Jewish artillery captain in the French army, 
who was convicted of passing secrets to the Germans in 1894. And after a great uproar and a large division amongst the French, he was exonerated in 1906, and he was reinstated as a major. And perhaps that's why. Perhaps the reasons for that are what we are going to read in the paragraph which follows. In France, occasioned by the Dreyfus Affair, the following persons were murdered. Captain Deatel, who gave evidence against him in the 1894 trial. The deputy, Chalin Servinier, who had received from Deatel the details of Dreyfus's confession. The district captain, Laurenceau, who revealed sums of money which had been sent from abroad to the friends of Dreyfus in his opinion, for bribery, and the prison warden, Rocher, who claimed to have heard how Dreyfus partially confessed his crime, Captain Valerio, one of the witnesses against Dreyfus, and President Fare, who had opposed a revision of the trial, also vanished soon afterwards. All defenders of Dreyfus were Freemason, and in addition, Jews, and the original conviction of Dreyfus is called a miscarriage of justice based on anti-Semitism to this very day. And our author says, In Sweden, the brother of Gustav III was murdered by H. Ankerstrom, secret envoy of the Grand Lodge, which Condorcet directed in accordance with the agreement of the Freemasons, who have assembled in 1786 in Frankfurt, Maine, or Frankfurt, um, Maine, as opposed to Frankfurt on the Oder, which is in Brandenburg. Here, there also seems to be some confusion, possibly due to a poor translation. It was Gustav III, King of Sweden, who was assassinated in 1792 by Jacob Ankerstrom. It wasn't Gustav's brother. It was Gustav himself. Ankerstrom assassinated him with the help of a group of confederates. Gustav, a crown prince, had taken over the government from the Swedish parliament in a coup in 1772, 20 years before his assassination, where his intention was to end the quote-unquote age of liberty and restore royal autocracy to Sweden. There are claims, however, that both he and his brother, Charles XIII, who ascended to the throne in 1809, were Freemasons themselves. In Russia, Paul I was, a mur was murdered, a Freemason, who, although he knew the danger from the Brotherhood, strictly forbade it. For the same reason, his son, Alexander I, suffered an identical fate, who was murdered in 1825 at Tangenrog. The murderers were, in their entirety, Freemasons. Paul, Paul I, Paul I, Emperor of the Russias, from 1796 to 1801, 
was said to be the Grand Master of the Order of Hospitaliers. Alexander I was a sometimes ally, sometimes enemy of Napoleon, and never coming to terms, Napoleon invaded Russia in 1812. So Masons are connected to the murders of Gustav, Paul I, and we will soon find they're connected to the murders of other European noblemen as well. In France, the death of Louis XVI, of course, this is the obvious one, is attributed to them. He was guillotined in 1793. Cardinal Matthew, Bishop, Archbishop of Besancon, and Monsignor Besson, Bishop of Nimes, have reported in letters which are known all over the world of the revelations which were made to them concerning the resolution taken in the convent of Wilhelmsbad to murder Louis XVI and the King of Sweden, Gustav III. These revelations were made to them by two former members of this convent, the murder of the Duke of Berry, the murder of Lou, the great patriot and enthusiastic Catholic of Lucerne, Switzerland, were resolved upon and carried out by members of the sect. The reference to the Duke of Berry must be to Charles Ferdinand d'Artois, who was stabbed to death by a so-called Bonapartist opponent of the monarchy as he was leaving the Paris Opera House in 1820. Without more information, I could not locate a historical account of the Lou, who is described as a great patriot and enthusiastic Catholic, mentioned here. It seems that in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, any king who was standing in the way of the establishment of parliamentary democracy or the Age of Liberty, was being assassinated by Freemasons, even those kings who were themselves involved in Freemasonry. So we have the deaths of Louis XVI, Paul I, and Gustav III. In Austria, the famous crime of Sarajevo, which was the first cause of the First World War, was arranged by the Freemasons, announced in advance and carried out at the given time. A high Freemasonic dignitary of Swiss nationality expressed himself in 1912 in this connection in the following manner. The successor to the throne is a personality with much talent. A pity that he is condemned. He will die on the way to the throne. Madame de Tevez predicted his death already two years previously. Those principally guilty were in their entirety Freemasons. All this, says Wichtel, is no mere suspicion, but legally proven facts, which have been intentionally concealed. In Germany, Marshal Eckhorn and his adjutant, Captain von Dressler, were murdered on the 30th of July, 1918. The day before, the Paris Freemasons newspaper, Le Matin, wrote that a patriotic secret society had offered a high price for the head of Eckhorn. 
one can certainly imagine what kind of society supplied this information to Le Matin. In the last part of the war, the Prussian general, Eckhorn was the commander of the German forces in the Ukraine. In Italy, Umberto I was murdered in 1900 by the anarchist Pressi, who as a Freemason belonged to a lodge in Patterson, New Jersey, in the United States, even though he himself had not been to America. Thus the declaration that, in certain degrees, arrogant men gave of the inscription on the cross, which was transformed into its opposite, I-N-R-I, or Justum Nicare Regis Italiae, which means it is just to murder the kings of Italy. On March 26, 1885, the Duke Carl III was murdered in Parma. The assassin, Antonio Cara, had the day before been chosen and incited at a secret session whose chairmanship Lemmy performed. Lemmy was later all highest Grand Master of Italian Freemasonry, and, as it appears, also of World Freemasonry. A certain Lippo had prepared a doll in order to illustrate how the most deadly dagger thrusts could be given, and the executioner was chosen by lots. Living one day after his brutal stabbing, Duke Carl III, the Duke of Parma, died on March 27, 1854, not 1885. There may have been a typographical error in the original publication. It is claimed that his murderers, Irenio Bocchi and Antonio Cara, looked so closely alike that the witnesses were confused and therefore they escaped conviction. It is also claimed that their only motive for the murder was money, but that whoever hired them is unknown, which is quite typical of 19th century assassinations. On May 22nd, Ferdinand II of Maples died. He was given a poison in a slice of melon which caused his terribly painful death. The instigator of this king's death was a Freemason who belonged to one of the most criminal branches of this sect, to that of the so-called Sublime and Perfect Masters. He was a disciple of Mazzini and one of the most respected persons of the royal court. Margiotta does not risk giving his name. With this author, one can read about further countless crimes that were committed by Freemasonry in Italy. And here there is an apparent historical inaccuracy in our source, which is somewhat disappointing. Perhaps one day we shall be able to investigate the original citations. None of them are in English. In relation to this, we have found Italian language sources which cite references to Domenico Margiata and Memories of a 33, which is how Google Translate 
evidently translates memories of a 33rd degree, would be our guess. And that was published by Delhomme and Briguet, publishers in Paris, in September of 1895. These sources also discuss contacts made between Mazzini, the Italian founder of Young Italy, which was a group and a movement more like a political party and a movement which was aimed at the unification of all Italy throughout the 19th century. For now it must be said that, that Ferdinand II, the Ferdinand II referred to here, is actually Ferdinand is actually the king of the two Sicilies, which in the early 19th century described the island of Sicily as it was united with all of the southern portion of the Italian peninsula south of the Papal States and Rome. Properly, the Kingdom of Italy at this time was north of the Papal States and included Tuscany and the Alpine region of Italy, Siena, Florence, Genoa, Savoy, Milan, Venice. This Ferdinand exiled and jailed many of the revolutionaries of 1848. He suffered a bayonet wound in an attempt on his life in 1856 after a diplomatic fallout with the British and French. He died in 1859 where it is generally claimed that he died from an infection caused by the earlier, the earlier wound. And that certainly sounds like a cover story for another assassination attempt which finally succeeded. I don't perceive that someone would die from a wound infection three years after they received the wound. That's kind of... Um, stretching it. In Portugal, King Charles and his son Louis were murdered. The Freemasons prepared the fall of the, prepared the fall of the monarchy. The venerable, and this is before the fact, the venerable H. Magalhães de Lima traveled in December 1907 to Paris, where he was solemnly received by one H. Moses, the member of the Grand Lodge. Magalhães held lectures in which he announced the fall of the monarchy in Portugal and the imminent foundation of the Republic. The well-known opponent of Freemasonry, Abbe Tormentine, wrote then that the Freemasons were clearly preparing a blow against the Portuguese royal family. He gave expression to his fear that within a short time King Charles would be driven out or murdered. Ten weeks later, Tormentine's fears were fulfilled, and he openly and clearly accused the Freemasons of this murder. The later preferred to keep silent. In America, one can read various details by Eckert concerning the persecution and murdering of Morgan in the United States. Because he wished to publish a book revealing the secrets of Freemasonry, and of course this reference we will discuss shortly is to William Morgan. Further, concerning the destruction of printing works and the persecution of the printer, 
as well as other hateful crimes that followed upon this murder. Concerning the public alarm that broke out when it was learned what favored the authorities, who, as a rule, were Freemasons, afforded the murderer and the support which the lodges regarded them, in reference to William Morgan, and not to the King of Portugal. Also known is the murder of the President of Ecuador, Garcia Moreno. Now, Moreno was assassinated in 1875. Charles, or Carlos I of Portugal, and his 20-year-old son and crown prince, Louis Philip, were shot as they traveled in Lisbon in an open carriage on February 1st, 1908. Their murderers were supposed Republican activists who were killed instantly by bodyguards of the king. His second son, Manuel II, became king at age 18 and was exiled in another October Revolution, this one in Portugal in 1910. Manuel died unexpectedly of an odd swelling of his trachea at the age of 42 while living in exile in Britain in 1932. The reference to Morgan here is to Captain William Morgan, who wrote an expose of Freemasonry in America in 1826 and was killed before it was published. The suppressed book has evidently survived and is available on the Internet today. I will post a link with this program. The Eckert mentioned here, even though our author tells us that we could read about Morgan in America, the Eckert mentioned here, so far as I could tell, is the German lawyer Eduard Emil Eckert, who died in 1866. He wrote a book published in both French and German which was titled Freemasonry in its True Meaning or Its Organization, Its Purpose, Its History. Eckert became a staunch opponent of the Freemasons after investigating its role in the revolutions of 1848, and he campaigned to have Freemasonry banned in his home state of Saxony. He was from Dresden. Under the subtitle, as if we hadn't seen enough, Bloodbaths, Summary Executions, and Plunderings. Our author writes, it is necessary to read the description of the freethinker Taine, T-A-I-N-E, in order to have an idea of what happened in France when, the year, when in the year 1789 and the three following years, the Freemasons conducted the government. More than 150,000 refugees and fugitives were imprisoned. 10,000 persons were killed without trial in a single province, that of Anjou. And then it says there were 500 dead in only one province of the West, and something tells me that that too is probably the result of a poor translation. In the year 1796, General Hoach wrote to the Ministry of the Interior, the present ratio to the population of 1789 is 1 to 20. There have been up to 400,000 prisoners at once in the prisons. More than one 
1,200,000 private persons have suffered injury to their person and several millions with property in their goods and chattels. And evidently the, the reference to 1 in 20 persons seems to describe the numbers of Frenchmen killed, exiled, or otherwise seriously injured in the aftermath of the French Revolution. The chapter concludes, Whoever desires, desires more information should read the work of the most dignified Cardinal Caro, The Secret of Freemasonry. And of course this book has been cited all throughout these chapters of the plot against the church. With this we will present chapter 5 of part 2 of the plot against the church. Freemasonry as a spreader of the Jacobin revolutions, those revolutions of 1848. The Archbishop of Port St. Louis, or Port Louis, I'm sorry, Monsignor Leon Murin says in his work, Philosophy of Freemasonry, and this is a long quote, in the year 1844, Disraeli placed the following words in the mouth of the Jew Sidonia, citing the British writer Coningsby. I'm sorry, citing Disraeli's book, Coningsby. Since the English society has begun to stir and its institutions are threatened by powerful associations, they see the formerly so faithful Jews in the ranks of the revolutionaries. Disraeli evidently writing a fairly candid novel and expressing himself through his Jewish character, Sidonia. This mysterious diplomacy, which so disturbs the Western powers, is organized by Jews and for the greatest part is also carried out by them. The monstrous revolution, which is prepared in Germany and whose effects will still be greater than those of the Reformation, is carried out under the protectorate of the Jews, of course referring to the revolutions of 1848, the Assertion is that Disraeli is writing this in 1844. Leading its preparations and effects in Germany, I see a Lithuanian Jew in the Spanish Senor Mendizabel. I see a Jew from Aragon in the French president of the, I'm sorry, in the president of the French council, Marshal Soult. I recognize the son of a French Jew in the Rush. Prussian minister, Graf Arnim. I see a Jew, as you already see, dear Coningsby. The world is ruled by personages who are very different from those who are regarded as, the, as ruling and do not work behind the scenes. I'm sorry, I seem to be having a hard time tonight enunciating. Perhaps I'm just tired. It must be remembered that Disraeli himself was a Jew and was also the benefactor of a much earlier revolution in Britain. The quotation continues, During the revolution of 1848, which was led by the Grand Orient of France, this is the quotation from Leon Murin 
And we're finished with the quotation that he took from Disraeli. During the Revolution of 1848, which was led by the Grand Orient of France, its Grand Master, the Jew Cremeux, was Minister of Justice. In 1860, this man founded the Israelite International League, and of course we understand that the use of the word Israelite in regard to the Jews is a great mistake and announced with incomprehensible insolence in the year 1861 in the Israelite archives that in place of popes and Caesars, a new kingdom, a new Jerusalem will arise, and our good Freemasons, with their blind eyes, help the Jews in the great work of building up this new Temple of Solomon, this new Caesarian papal kingdom of the Kabbalists. <coughs> Excuse me. So we see that the real Temple of Solomon, which the Jews aspired to establish through Freemasonry, was not a mere building in Palestine, according to the Jew Kremuhu. It is the same Jewish world supremacy which is boasted of in the protocols of the learned elders of Zion. And Kremu's words here are indeed reminiscent of many of the boastful statements in the protocols themselves. Continuing with Leon Murin. In the year 1862, a Berlin Freemason had a leaflet of eight pages printed in which he complained about the predominance of Jews in the lodges. Under the title, Signs of the Time, he alludes to the dangerous character of the Berlin elections of April 28th and May 6th of the year in question. An element, he said, has appeared on the scene and has exercised a dangerous influence which causes disintegration on all sides. The Jew. The Jews are leading in their writings, words, and deeds. They are the most principal leaders and agents in all revolutionary undertakings, even in the building of barricades. One has seen this very clearly in Berlin in the year 1848. How is it possible that in Berlin 217 Jewish candidates were elected and that in two districts only Jews were elected with the exclusion of any Christian candidates. In his book, and this is only a short time later, in his book, The Victory of Judaism Over Germanism, of which the eighth edition, I don't know when the first edition was published, perhaps it's in the book, and I looked and I didn't see it, and I've forgotten, because I did present this booklet several years ago over a series of three programs. The eighth edition was published in 1879, The Victory of Judaism Over Germanism. In this book, German journalist Wilhelm Marr 
spoke a lot of the Jews, but he never once mentioned Freemasonry. The Reuschland Affair, as we've often mentioned, initiated German interest in the wicked Kabbalah of the Jews. And this is the result. 340 years later, the Jews are running Germany by the 1860s or by the 1870s, according to the German journalist Wilhelm Marr. He saw the handwriting on a wall that it was already lost for Germany. So what we're seeing happen in Germany today is basically only the final death throes of the nation. Of course, we understand that we have victory in Christ. I don't think most of the German people understand that, but they will. Our source continues, quoting Leon Murin. This position of things has worsened more and more. The Jews formed a majority in the city government, so that Berlin, with justice, could be called the capital of the Jews, 1862. In the press, the Jews speak of the people and of the nation, as if there were only Jews and no Christians existed, as it also seems to have been in America for decades. The explanation for this could be given by the Freemasonic insiders, who, following Brother Lamartine, introduced the revolutions of 1789, 1830, 1848, etc. This explanation is confirmed by, quote-unquote, Brother Garnier Pages, a minister of the Republic, who, in the year 1848, publicly declared that the revolution of 1848 represents the triumph of the norms of the Freemasonic League so that France was dedicated to Freemasonry, and that 40,000 Freemasons had promised their help to conduct to an end the glorious work of the erection of the Republic, which had been chosen to spread out over the whole of Europe, and in the end, over the entire Earth. Sounds like proto-Bolshevism. It is proto-Bolshevism. The high peak of all this is the political and revolutionary power of the Jews. According to the words of J. Wheel, leader of the Jewish Freemasons, who said in a secret report, we exercise a powerful influence on the movements of our time and of the progress of civilization in the direction of republicanizing of the peoples. The Jew Ludwig Born, author, I'm sorry, another Freemasonic leader, said likewise in a secret document, We have with mighty hand so much shattered the pillars upon which the old building rests that they groan and crack. Mendizabal, likewise a Jew, and the soul of the Spanish Revolution of 1820, set through the capture of Porto and Lisbon, and in 1838, by means of his Freemasonic influence, realized the revolution in Spain where he became Prime Minister. And our author is still following Leon Murin's book, Philosophy of Freemasonry, where he notes, 
and His Excellence, the Archbishop, referring to Leon Murin, goes on to say, The Jew, Mendizabel, had promised as minister to improve the insecure financial position of Spain. But in short time, the result of his machinations was a frightful increase of the national debt and the great diminishing of the state incomes, while he and his friends accumulated enormous riches. And back then, they didn't even need computers to do that. The sale of more than 900 Christian institutions of religious and charitable kind, which the Cortesa, upon the instigation of the Jews, had declared to be national property, created for them a magnificent opportunity for the unparalleled increase of their personal property. In the same manner, church property was dealt with. The unskillful mockery of religious and national feelings went so far that the mistress of Mendizabel dared to flaunt herself in public with a wonderful necklace, which a short time previously had served to decorate an image of the Holy Virgin Mary in one of the churches of Madrid. The Berlin Freemason, whom we mentioned at the beginning, said further, The danger for the throne and the altar, which are threatened by the Jewish power, has reached its highest point, and it is time to sound alarm, just as the leaders of German Freemasonry did when they said, The Jews have understood that the kingly art, a reference to the Freemasonic art, was a principal means to erect their own secret kingdom. The danger threatens not only our order, Freemasonry, but the state in general. The Jews find manyfold opportunities in the lodges to exercise their old familiar systems of briberies by sowing confusion in many affairs. If one bears in mind the role that the Jews played in the crimes of the French Revolution and the illegal Corsican seizure of property. If one also bears in mind the tenacious beliefs of the Jews in the future Israelite kingdom which will rule the world, as well as their influence on a great number of ministers of state, one will recognize how dangerous their activity can become in Freemasonic affairs. The Jewish people forms a tribe which hostile, hostilely opposes the entire human race and which believes the God of Israel has only one chosen people to whom all others must serve as footstools. And of course we understand that the Jews have absconded certain passages of scripture for themselves which certainly do not refer to them. And nowhere in the Bible does it state that other races of people will be the footstools of Israel. It only states that the earth is God's footstool. The Jews claim the God of the Bible, then they cast him aside and promote themselves to the position of God because the Jews really are Satan and that is what Satan does that is how Satan 
is described in the Bible itself. Those enemies of God who want to make themselves gods, that is the true identity of the Jews. They're only claiming falsely to be these people of the Bible. They're not the people of the Bible at all. Paul of Tarsus told us 2,000 years ago that the Jews were contrary to all men. If people would only read those Bibles. This is the inevitable outcome for Christendom. When Christian men forsake the gospel of Christ in exchange for Jewish fables, the Kabbalah, and the contrived legends behind the Freemasonic so-called mysteries, which are really only childish tales. As Paul of Tarsus had warned his companion Titus, this witness is true, wherefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. To return to Leon Murin, let it be borne in mind that among the 17 million inhabitants of Prussia, there are only, well, this is an incredible number, there are only, I'm rolling my eyes, 600,000 Jews. Let it be borne in mind with what convulsive zeal this people of oriental and irrepressible activity works to attain the overthrow of the state with all means, to occupy the higher teaching institutions, even by means of money, and to monopolize the government offices in its favor. Carlyle, one of the most authoritative Freemasonic personages, says in page 86 of his work, The Manual of Freemasonry, The Freemasonry of the Grand Lodge is at present, through and through, Jewish. The references to Richard Carlyle's Manual of Freemasonry, which we will also post a link to along with this presentation. It was first published in London in 1833. A fuller citation on the aforementioned page, page 86, reads thus, The Grand Lodge Masonry of the present day now this was written in 1833, is wholly Jewish. But a full understanding of the subject presents the three orders of Judaism, Christianity, and Masonry as one and the same allegorical scheme for human improvement. And that also means that it's wholly Jewish. Continuing with Leon Murin. The Kreutz-Zeitung, the principal organ of the Prussian conservatives, published from the 29th of June to July 3rd, 1875, a series of articles in which it elaborated that the chief ministers in the German and Prussian government, not excluding Prince Bismarck, 
found themselves in the hands of the Jewish kings of the Bourse, meaning the securities and commodities markets, which Adolf Hitler had vilified in Mein Kampf, and that the Jewish bankers were those who in practice ruled Prussia and Germany. These facts caused the Jew Gutzkau to assert the true founders of the new German Reich, meaning the Prussian Reich, are the Jews. The Jews are the most advanced in all sciences, the press, the stage, and politics. And that's simply not true. It's that the Jews get all the positions and all the money because they print the money. That's what's true. I do not remember exactly where, but long ago, I think in the presentations of, on the revolutions in Europe employing the work of Nesta Webster, I opined that the Jews elevated the Prussians to continental hegemony through the Masonic lodges, but did not have a smoking gun, as Webster always seemed hesitant to identify the Jews even as the driving force behind Freemasonry. I may never understand why she was so hesitant to do so. She was always quick to point out that such and such or so and so wasn't a Jew. In the year 1860, M. Stamm wrote a book on this theme in which he proves that the kingdom of all-embracing freedom on earth was founded by the Jews. In the same year, Sompter published a long letter in the Volksblatt in order to demonstrate that the Jews would very soon take up the place of the Christian nobility. The rule of the nobility was fa falling and will lose its place in this epoch of all-enveloping light and of all-embracing freedom to which we have drawn so near. Do you not understand, he writes, the true meaning of the promise which was given by the Lord God's Sabbath to our father Abraham? This is the Jewish perspective, of course. This promise, which will be filled with certainty, namely that one day all peoples of earth will be subject to Israel, do you believe that God referred to a universal monarchy with Israel as king? Oh no, God scattered the Jews over the entire face of the globe so that they should form a kind of leaven over all races, and in the end, as the chosen, which they are, extend their rulership over the former, which is, of course, a total perversion of the biblical message. Christian men should have recognized this as an affront of Christianity, where Christ is king, not the Jews, for which all Jews should have been hanged immediately. Christians should know that the promises made to Abraham are fulfilled in Christ, even if they are ignorant as to the particulars of ancient history and the real identity of the Jews. It is explained by Luke in chapter 1. It is explained by Paul in Romans 4. It is explained by John in chapters 10 and 14. But instead, for some strange reason, Christians chose, and still choose, to believe the enemies of Christ 
rather than the gospel of Christ. Continuing with our source, it is not likely that the terrible repression that the Christian peoples of Europe have suffered, who have been made poor through the usurers and the greed of the Jews, and lament about this, so that the national wealth is accumulated in the hands of the great bankers, will be satisfied with isolated anti-Semitic upheavals. The monarchies, whose firm foundations are still not shattered through the Freemasonic hammer, and whose ruling houses are still not at the position of the ragged and barefooted Freemasons, and who have their eyes bound, will join together against this vile sect and destroy the ranks of the anarchists. And, of course, it certainly didn't happen. Carlyle, himself a fanatical Freemason, horrified at the fate of mankind in the hands of the Jews, says, When the legislators busy themselves again with the secret societies, they would do well to make no exception in favor of Freemasonry. And, of course, Freemasonry was not the only secret society of 19th century Europe, but it certainly was the major one. It was certainly responsible for the French Revolution and all of the revolutions of 1848, and it's the only one that we can see publicly had survived. The others, of course, if they're secret societies, we may not know. The privilege of secrecy is allowed to the Freemasons according to law in England, France, Germany, and according to our recognizing it in most countries. The fact that all revolutions emanate from the depths of Freemasonry would be inexplicable if we did not know that. With the present exception of Belgium, the ministries of all lands are found in the hands of leading Freemasons, and thus fundamentally of the Jews. And, in contrast, the Roman historian Livy, and I've discussed this many times. Livy explains that in the Roman Republic, every meeting of men in private was seen as a conspiracy to the Republic, and that for that reason men were only permitted to assemble in public places. Likewise, Thucydides, the great Greek historian of the Peloponnesian War, explained that the democracy of Athens had prohibited political parties, since they were also nothing more than conspiracies against the people. Every political party is, in its very essence, a conspiracy against everybody in a country who is not in that party. The ancients were much wiser than modern Europeans. Continuing with our author, who has just completed the lengthy citation from the Archbishop Leon Murin, one of the most interesting proofs is undoubtedly 
that of the Freemason Hogwitz, who was inspector of the lodges of Prussia and Poland. In the year 1707, he writes in his memoirs, I took over the direction of the lodges of Prussia, Poland, and Russia, where I have gained the firm conviction that everything which has since which has occurred since 1789 in France, in a word, the revolution, was at that time not only arranged, but was also prepared by a means of meetings, instructions, oath-taking, and signs, which leaves the intelligence in no doubt as to who thought it all out and directed it. As far as the murder of Louis XVI is concerned, we likewise possess the evidence of the Jesuit father Abel, and I'm not sure if this Abel is a Jewish converso or not. In the year 1784, he declared, there took place in Frankfurt an extraordinary assembly of the Grand Eclectic Lodge. One of the members placed for discussion the condemning of Louis XVI, the King of France, and Gustav III, the king of Sweden. This man was called Abel and was my grandfather, the Jesuit making the admission that his grandfather was involved in the planning of these, of the deaths, the murders of these kings. And this is citing von Hogwitz's Memorien, or Memoirin, searches for the original produced many German-language references which may be elevant, relevant, but which I can't read, and since they are only PDF facsimiles, would be very difficult to run through a translator. After this gathering, one of the participants, the Marquis de Visu, declared as follows, What I can say to you is that a finely spun and most deep-reaching conspiracy has been instigated, so that your religion and governments will succumb, citing Abbe Baruel's memoirs of the history of Jacobinism. The existence of this conspiracy and its plan to murder the King of France and the King of Sweden are likewise confirmed by the greatest number of authors who have made serious investigations into the Freemasonry question, referring to Deschamps, Cardinal Matthew, Monsignor Besson, and others. And the tragic events do the same. On January 21st, King Louis XVI died, executed through the guillotine, after a mock trial, at which the majority of judges were Freemasons. A year later, King Gustav III of Sweden was murdered by Akustrom, or properly Ankarstrom, a pupil of Condorcet. Now, Condorcet's been mentioned earlier here. He is the French Enlightenment philosopher, Nicholas, the Marquis of Condorcet. In the same year, the Emperor Leopold vanished in a mysterious manner. Now, here, perhaps, the word vanished is the result of another poor translation. The Emperor Leopold II died suddenly in Vienna, and claims that he was poisoned or otherwise murdered have evidently 
evidently, I say, not been substantiated, which is all too typical of such cases. Continuing with our source, in order to live, France must not sacrifice what is most rational in its existence, the philosophical, political, and social ideals of its predecessors of 1789. It must not extinguish the torch of its revolutionary spirit, which, with which it has illuminated the world. And of course, this is the perspective of a mason. The same speaker, Marquet, Marquis de Visseau, and I'm probably butchering that pronunciation. The worst humiliation for France would occur if the work of the revolution were cursed. At least it should be possible to perpetuate it without the loss of its ideals. One must never forget that it was the French Revolution which realized the principles of Freemasonry which were prepared in our temples, said a speaker at the Congress of the Freemasons of Brussels. This is um, evidently documented in the International Congress of Brussels, 1910, Memorial, page 124. In an assembly of the Lodge of Angers, which took place in 1922, perhaps that's Angers, one of the brothers proclaimed Freemasonry, which played the most important role in the year 1789, must be ready to supply its fighting groups for an always possible revolution, citing the official State Journal of France, October 1922. Let us pass over the stage of participation of the Jews in revolutions in general. Already in the year 1648, the great revolutionary leader Cromwell was supported by the Jews, a deputation which came from remotest Asia and was led by the rabbi Jacob ben Azabel, appeared before the English dictator. The results of the conversations which took place were not long in coming and Cromwell used his entire power in order to abolish the laws that placed restrictions upon the Jews in England. And there our author is citing Leon HaLevi, and he is of course a Jewish historian, a, sort, a short history of the Jews originally written in German. When we presented the Reuschland affair, from the perspective of E. Michael Jones, he also cited Leon Halevi or Halevi quite often. One of the closest collaborators of Cromwell was the rabbi of Amsterdam, Manasseh ben Israel. Ernest Renan, who cannot be accused of anti-Semitism, wrote the following. In the French revolutionary movement, the Jewish element plays a chief role, and it is very difficult to deny this. It is true that around 1789, 
the Jews went to work with much caution and concealed themselves behind the Freemasonic organizations and the philosophical associations. However, this did not prevent several of the sons of Israel from taking an active part in the revolutionary events and making use of these from the material standpoint. The first shot against the Swiss Guard of the Tuileries was fired on the 10th of August, 1791, by the Jew, Zalkind Hauerwitz Land, citing another Jew, Leon Kahn, in The Jews of Paris During the Revolution, written in German. But since this zeal for war carries with it many dangers, the Jews preferred to devote themselves to other, less dangerous, and above all, rewarding activities. The old Hebrew, and of course the label is certainly misapplied, because no Jew is a Hebrew. Benaltas, a millionaire of this city, referring to Cadiz in Spain, was from now on named as the general treasurer of the order, and already reckoned to possess a disposable capital of 300,000 thalers. The supplying of the French Republican armies was carried out through, and the text says, Israelites, through the Jews, Bitterman, Max Beer, Mosselman, and others. This gave occasion to the complaints which were made by Colonel Burnenville of the Army of the Moselle, because for the troops he had been supplied with boys' shoes with cardboard soles, children's stockings, and completely moth-eaten sailcloths for tents. How typical that is of the Jews. And there our author is citing Pierre Gaxot, The French Revolution, published in 1932 in the United States. As we have previously demonstrated in a presentation called The Wicked Black Gentry, after George Washington's own term for the Jews, the Jewish merchants had capitalized on supplying the armies of the North American revolutionaries a decade or so earlier, greatly enriching themselves by overcharging on the inferior goods and services which they had provided. Returning to our source, soon after, the laws that restricted the rights of the Jews were lifted, thanks to the mediation of Abbot Gregor, Mirabeau, Robespierre, and others. This is done on the first occasion by all revolutionary governments. And soon afterwards, when the ideas of 1789 gained the upper hand, a veritable flood, according to the words of Cape Fuige, of foreigners discharged themselves over France from the banks of the Rhine. In other words, Jews were flooding from Germany into France. Then appeared in the political arena, arena names such as Klotz, Benjamin Vito Ephraim, Etta Palm, etc. The Messiah has arrived for us on February 28, 1790, with the rights of man, wrote the Jew Cohen, 
and in fact the awarding of all rights of citizenship to the Jews was one of the great victories of Israel. A misnomer once again. The revolution of 1830, said the Jew Bedaride, has only perpetuated these happy results. When, in the year 1848, the rule, I'm sorry, the rule of the peoples reached its last limits, the same author cynically added that Jewish names appeared in the highest realms of power. These chosen ones, these representatives of the people, often took on such French names as Fould, Cerebert, Crimeau, etc. The custom of there being at least one Jewish representative in the government of the Republic is something that, apart from rare exceptions, has been preserved up to our days. However, not only in France did the Jewish people play a predominant role, but with all revolutionary movements. The revolution that shook Central Europe in the year 1848, writes Lambolin, was spread and supported by the Jews, as the countless facts and documents prove. Among the instigators of the revolution of 1870, and among the members of the commune appear likewise the Jews, who were represented through Ravel Isaac Comer, Jacob Pariah, and others. The aforementioned author remarks of the presence of eighteen Jews among the principal leaders of the commune, the Paris Commune. It is interesting to establish that, during the burning of Paris in the year 1871, the revolutionaries left untouched the 150 buildings that belonged to the Rothschild family, and, in contrast, Adolf Hitler seized buildings which belonged to the Rothschilds. If we proceed with the study of these movements in Europe, we again find Jews, the poet Heine, Karl Marx, LaSalle, and many others in order to destroy the former society which rejected him, writes Drumont, the Jew has understood how to place himself at the head of the democratic movement. Karl Marx, LaSalle, the most principal nihilists, all the leaders of the worldwide revolution are Jews. In this manner, the Jews rep represent the leadership of the movements which suits them. Let us not forget that the founders of the Internationale in the year 1864 were the Jews Mark, Neumeyer, Freeborg, James Cohen, Aaron, Adler, Frankel, and the sole non-Jew, Gompers. And a question that even Gompers may have been a Jew is indicated with a question mark in parentheses in the original. In order to direct the revolutionary movement in France, the so-called newspaper Les Humanités was founded. For this purpose, a subscription was opened, which brought in the sum of 780,000 francs. 
let us mention the names of the twelve contributors who, by chance, were all Jews, Levi Brule, Levi Brahm, A. Dreyfus, L. Dreyfus, Eli Rodriguez, Leon Picard, Blum Roof, Kassovitz, Salman Reinach, and Sachs. After one has read the proceeding, one cannot wonder that, as the Jewish Synod of Leipzig, on June 29, 1869, the following resolution was accepted. The Synod recognizes that the development and carrying through of modern, and they have read revolutionary in parentheses, of modern principles are the firmest guarantee for the present and the future of Jewry and its members. They are the most important conditions of life for the expanding existence and the greatest development of Jewry. And there our author is citing Guggenot de Maisot in The Jew-Jewry and the Judaization of the Christian Peoples, which today has come to its full force and effect. Christians worship the Jews now instead of Jesus. In many respects, the revolution has only been the application of the ideal that Jews have brought to the world. And I'm amending the text as I proceed, because the word Israel in relation to Jews is repugnant. As Leroy Ballou, 40, right, as, I'm sorry, I'm trying to read the footnote number. As Leroy Ballou writes, an author who is in no way accused of anti-Semitism. One must give him justice for the importance of Jewish infiltration in the revolutionary work cannot be denied. Under the subtitle, The Organization of the League of Nations, which we have already discussed or seen discussed earlier in this work. We have seen the League of Nations, which was founded and maintained by the same secret forces which we have already encountered when it was a matter of destruction. Today, Freemasonry, their helpers, the left parties, and behind everything, the Jewish people, attempt to destroy national feeling and the sovereignty of the state through the creation of an international supergovernment and at the same time to demoralize the peoples with an anti-militarist and pacifistic propaganda. If national feeling is lost, we will see those people standing completely defenseless against this secret and cunning power as the Jewish Freemasonic striving for power can be described. Brother Eugene Bertrand has recently proposed to the Grand Lodge of France that Article 17 of the Constitution of the said Grand Lodge should be abolished, which prescribes to all its disciples that they should obey the laws of the land in which they have permission to freely assemble, and that they be ready for all sacrifices which their country desires of them. For 
According to the principles of a universal morality, every Freemason is by definition an essentially free man who only acts according to his conscience, and our Freemasonic conscience cannot compulsively demand of its disciples that they be ready for all the sacrifices which the country desires. The abolition which he proposes will suffice in value in protecting the individual conscience, whereby is to be understood that, in the case of an increase in tragic conflicts, those individual consciences, according to their own responsibility, will obey or disobey the call of their reason and their belief in the highest truth. And then under the title, The Jewish Freemasonic Action in the Face of Catholicism. The most dignified Cardinal Caro assures us in this connection that it is beyond doubt that the activity of Freemasonry against the Catholic Church is only the continuation of the war against Christ that has been waged by Jewry for 1900 years, naturally adjusted to the situation of the Christian world by which the former has to conduct itself by means of secrecy, cheating, and sanctimoniousness. And here we must agree, but it is not merely the Catholic Church which was the object of the Jews, but all of white Christian Europe, which the Jews had as a playground before Christianity, and which they wanted back ever since Christianity caused the Jews to be ostracized. Let us not forget that rabbinic Jewry is the declared and irreconcilable enemy of Christianity, says Webster. The hatred against Christianity and against the person of Christ is no occurrence of recent date, nor can one regard it as the result of persecution. It forms an important component of rabbinical tradition, which has arisen before any kind of persecution of Jews through the Christians took place and which lasted in our land very much later than after this persecution ended. On its side, the British Guardian makes this assertion. The Christian Church is being attacked as never for centuries, and this attack is almost exclusively the work of the Jews. March 13, 1925 For the rest, the relations of Freemasonry or of Jewry with Bolshevism and Communism in Mexico, in Russia, in Hungary, persecuting the Catholic Church and with it the whole of Christianity, and a threat of doing this all over the world, are a universal occurrence. And this concludes Chapter 5 of Part 2 of The Plot Against the Church. And while we did not plan it originally, we are compelled to continue this presentation for at least one more segment in the near future. This book is simply too intriguing, and its proofs to replete to set down now. We are persuaded that it is certainly a prerequisite for our coming presentation of the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion as it helps to establish all of our assertions concerning their validity, concerning the motives of their authors in relation to the behavior and attitude 
of the Jews of Europe over the several centuries before the protocols became revealed. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of true Israel and the enemy of the Jews, and good night.